This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. All right. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for November 14th, 2021. We'll be exploring Doctrine and Covenants sections 129 to 134 with Dr. Andrea Radke-Moss. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome everyone. If you're joining us for the first time, you can check out our previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts and videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. Our website also features the entire 50 plus years of the journal, all of its scholarship and poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and fabulous art. Today's lesson will be added to our list of previous lessons, and that usually happens by the end of the day. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made all of the journal, its 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series, our podcasts and other features, entirely free to online users. This has meant moving away from a subscription model of funding, and we have spent the past few years figuring out how that could possibly work. Uh, We've set a budget and made a plan and are asking for your help in creating a fund that secures the future of dialogue. You can find out more at Sustaining Dialogue uh, at givetodialogue.com. We also have an email address dedicated to this campaign. That address is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. For today's lesson, if you're with us live on Zoom, you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments in the chat. We'll also follow along with what folks have to say on Facebook, where we hope to be live soon, um, if we can work out that tech. Uh, Andrea Radke-Moss is a professor of history at Brigham Young University in Idaho, where she teaches courses in the American West and U.S. women's history. She received her Ph.D. from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2002, and her book, Bright Epic, Women and Coeducation in the American West, was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2008. Her research areas are Western women and Mormon women broadly. She's looked at women's experiences in the Missouri War of 1838, especially sexual violence, and Western women's participation in the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. She has published widely in anthologies and journals on many areas of women's history. In 2018, her essay, Silent Memories of Missouri, Women and Men and Sexual Assault in Group Memory and Religious Identity, was awarded the Mormon History Association Best Article in Mormon Women's History. Dr. Raki Moss recently published a chapter on Mormonism and sexual violence uh, in the Rutledge Handbook of Mormonism and Gender, edited by Dialogue Editor Taylor Petrie and Amy Hoyt. Her church street cred is having served a mission to Brazil, Curitiba, and being a Relief Society president a couple of times, but she's been in primary for 10 years, which is probably the best place for her, she says, away from the general population. Uh, She lives in Rexburg, Idaho with her husband and two children, and we are especially grateful to have her uh, uh, sitting upright today. She's uh, had quite an illness this past week and has still managed to be here uh, on Sunday morning with us. We are really grateful for her preparation and are excited to see what insights she brings to us today. 
As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Brigham Young University, or any other organization. Before we get started, I wanted to announce a new Dialogue initiative, Dialogue in Review. This quarterly webinar series will feature some of the journal's contributors and sometimes other folks talking about the topics and themes of our most recent issue. We are thrilled to start this initiative next Sunday, November 21st at 6 p.m. Mountain Time with authors from our summer 2021 indigeneity issue. Please join us as Farina King, Ronnie Joe Draper, James Singer, uh, Eva Bighorse, and Sarah Newcomb talk about indigenous perspectives and experiences in the LDS faith tradition and their hopes for the future of Mormon scholarship, culture, community, theology, and lived religion. Today, to start us off, we'll enjoy music. Voches 8 performs Lay a Garland by Robert Lucas Purcell at the Gresham Center in London. And after that, Maxine Hanks will give the opening prayer. Maxine lectures and writes on history, Mormon studies, and theology. Uh, her educational path includes BYU, the University of Utah, Arizona State, Harvard Divinity School, and among other places. She's been a research fellow with the Utah Humanities. Uh, her first book, Women in Authority, uh, revived Mormon feminist history and feminist theology. She was one of the September 6th excommunicated by the LDS Church in 1993 for her work on Mormon feminist theology. She pursued clergy and liturgical studies in Gnostic Christianity and interfaith ministry, serving as a volunteer chaplain at Holy Cross Chapel, as well as on the Salt Lake Interfaith Council. Hanks returned to LDS Church membership in 2012 and has served in Young Women's and Relief Society and teaching Sunday classes in her ward. Our most gracious, loving, divine father and mother, we appeal to thee today in gratitude and in seeking. We are so grateful for Dialogue, its board and directors and editors, and for this beautiful Sunday school program. We're so grateful for the information, education, and the inspiration and prayers and the incredible music that inspires us each Sunday to, to reach beyond the limits of our own minds and the conflicts of our society to seek thy wisdom and guidance. We are so grateful for Andrea Radke Moss. We ask thee to please be with her today and embrace her, enfold her in thy love and comfort. Help her to know how much we admire and love her and how much she has shaped and affected our, our lives for good. Please let her know how profound her influence and work has been and the ways that she has educated and mentored and urged us to greater wisdom and honesty and knowledge. We are so grateful for her painstaking thorough research, her, her fine mind and her integrity and strength. Please bless her with the clarity of thought and mind that she seeks and desires today. 
and help her to know how much we love and appreciate her. Please bless each one of us that we will be guided by wisdom to learn and discern truth from error, that we will be guided to see the problems and harms in our tradition and our texts, and at the same time, be guided to go deeper to see the embedded wisdom and truth and inspiration within our tradition and our texts, and that we will be given the gift to discern between truth and error. We ask thee to be with us all and, and especially with Andrea, and please bless her with those things that she most needs at this time. And we say these things humbly and gratefully in the name of our spiritual and elder brother in humanity and in heaven, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you, Maxine. That's a really beautiful prayer. Um, can everyone, can everyone hear me? Okay. Give a thumbs up if you can hear me. Okay. Um, so how many months ago did Rebecca, did you ask me to do this? Like 10? <laughs> so I've been, you know, it's, this is, this is, uh, I feel like I wanted to put a picture on the screen of a minefield so that you would know that no matter where I step today, something's going to blow up in my face or to use the metaphor of my dog. A, a yard full of dog pooies that no matter where I step today, I'm going to step in a pile of hot steaming dog pooies. But we'll set those metaphors aside and I hope that you will be patient with me as I work through some theological and personal and spiritual conundrums that are basically wound up in section 132. I don't think I'm unique in this at all. I think that many of us have um, a very fraught, um, maybe even a horrible relationship with Doctrine and Covenants 132, and that's okay. I recognize that I am speaking to a crowd of people that might range on a spectrum of people who believe this is absolute scripture revelation from God and those that believe that Joseph made this up to manipulate his wife um, and everybody in between and those that want to keep it and those that want to see the thing decanonized ASAP and everybody in between so how do you work with how do you work with a text that is that fraught well, good luck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. And I might sometimes kind of call on Maxine to kind of help me with some ideas and things that I've, we've been working on in our head. But first, I'm going to tell a story. So last week, my daughter, who's 11, she came home from church. She's only in primary. She's, she's still in primary because she doesn't um, turn into young women's until January, of course. But she came home and she said, Mommy, my teacher said that um, a man can be married to more than one woman, but a woman can't be married to more than one man. And I said, that's true. According to church practice and principle, like sealed, as, as you know. Uh, I guess maybe they had discussed 132 or something in their primary lesson. I didn't. Maybe they do discuss that in primary. And she's like, but that's so sexist my 11 year old, but that's so sexist. 
And I said, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. Well, I don't, I don't want it to be that way anyway. And so then we went on on this conversation about that. Um, that's one anecdote. I have another anecdote. Um, so full disclosure, I am a second sealed wife. Hi. In case anybody was wondering where I come from with this is not just from my background in women's history, but my background as a second sealed wife. So there it is. I met my husband here in Rexburg. And he had lost his wife, his first wife, about a year and four months prior when we met. And she had died of leukemia. She was young. She was younger than I was. She it was tragic, terrible death. She just suffered so much. And, you know, I when we met and he was trying to sort of maybe look at maybe dating again or whatever, but he was still really raw. So he started dating and went through that whole courtship process. And it was always present, this idea that you were married before and you were married before. And what, how is this going to work out? And um, when we finally did get sealed, you know, we started our own family and we've now been together for 16 years. He was with her for a little under, just a little over a year. And so um, sometimes I wonder if he thinks back on her as kind of like a, like a long lost girlfriend that he had at one time, but there's not a lot of kind of core identity associated with that marriage. And yet it's still precious to him. One of the things that she said to him when she was on her deathbed was she said, I'm just so afraid that you'll forget me. I'm afraid you'll forget me. So I'm the person that women fear. I'm the second wife that all women in the church fear that if you die, your husband can get married again. That's me. That's me. But at the same time, I also fear looking back that maybe on times when we have disagreements, we don't get along as well, or we have misunderstandings that I'm he might be thinking, boy, I sure wish Mary was here. She would understand me better. Or I also fear, what if I died? Could he marry again? And then I'd be the, let's, let's face it, the favorite second wife, because second wives are always, I'm just kidding. But that, that sense of where do you fit within this collection of wives? Where do you fit in this collection of wives? So I think that I want to approach this thing, not necessarily from the point of point of view of critiquing that a man can be married to more than one wife, especially in the event of death. Um, my issue is that a woman can't be sealed to another man in the event of his death. I think my issue more has to do with the fairness of the system and the raw patriarchy of it. This is kind of where I come from. Um, one time we were in a Sunday school class and our Sunday school teacher said to everybody, everybody list on the board. What are some gospel principles you're, you're grateful for? And we, he and I had just been recently married and we were kind of being flippant. I don't know why we were, we were just huddling together and everybody's yelling out, you know, 
law of chastity and sacrifice. Everybody yelling out. And he and I yelled out, we're grateful for polygamy. <laughs> and the whole room went literally like bone dead silent. Dead silent. It was not funny. They didn't think it was funny. Members of the church in here in Rexburg, they didn't think that was funny. So we're like, oh, we shouldn't say the polygamy joke. Okay. So, but the fact is, is that DNC 132 theologically as a construct allows me to be sealed to my husband and my children to be sealed to, to me. And there it is. But it also allows him to see, be sealed to his first wife who bless her heart. It was not her fault that she died of leukemia. Of course it wasn't her fault and she shouldn't be blamed for that. And she shouldn't be like one of us gets to be the one with the main wife. So let's, we'll set that aside. Um, of, of all of that. So I want to, I want to approach this DNC 132 from the point of view of maybe more of a historical context of what brought it on, but also looking at some of the language of 132 that I do find troublesome, particularly as in regards to Emma, which I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with. So I'm going to go ahead and, and share a screen. Oh, wait, um, Chris, can you let me share screen? Oh, there we okay, go. Go ahead. Okay, thanks, sir. All righty. Um, we've come. We've we've come now into this general um, approach to one thirty-two. I think we can all agree on. I think everyone here in this room. And collectively, we can all agree that the main approach to 132 is that it's, we now interpret it according to just a, a definition of eternal marriage. We focus on the verses that talk about the sealing power. We focus on the verses that talk about what can be bound in, bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. We focus on the verses that, um, that give Joseph this, this power. We focus on the continuation of lives and blessings and thrones and principalities. We focus on that and the blessings that come from being a sealed married couple. And that's great. But when you, when you look at um, what brought on Doctrine and Covenants 132 and what um, Joseph's kind of motives were for it, and I'm going to be partly um, um, looking for a word. I'm grateful to Ben Park for some of his um, context. I was, been, I was reading in his Nauvoo book this week to try and get some context of how the layering of which wives Joseph was seeking in Nauvoo and which wives. And Joseph started out seeking wives, um, that sounds, according to Ben, that was more like other women that were married to other women, um, some like a widow and Agnes Coolbrith, who was her, her brother, his brother's widow. And then as you move into later 1842 and 1843, then he starts approaching single women. And when you get to 1843, he's trying to um, deal with how is he going to introduce Emma into this kind of circle of knowledge, as well as how is he going to introduce Hiram into the circle of knowledge. And I wasn't as aware of that as, as Ben made it really clear is that Hiram didn't seem to be as, a, as aware of what Joseph was doing behind the scenes. And so um, 
when Joseph introduced the idea of plurality of wives to Hiram, he, the way that Ben describes it, he, he introduces it in a way that is meant to sucker Hiram for a deceased wife. The idea that you can be sealed to somebody after death, that you can, you can stay married to somebody even after you die. And that, and then once you couched it in those terms, that that made Hiram more amenable to it. And so then he uses that kind of construct to then try to approach Emma to, to her, to her to understand it. But then we have this text of Doctrine and Covenants 132 and the, the situation leading up to it had to do with these two sets of sisters, single sisters, shall we call them virgins because they were young women, teenagers that were that Joseph was proposing marriage to. Yes. And so that's kind of the setup for 132. But I want to point out that um, as much as we kind of try to redirect 132 in our minds, it is the very, very first verse of the section tells what the whole section is about. And if you'll read it, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, that inasmuch as you have inquired of my hand to know and understand wherein I, the Lord, justified my servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as also Moses, David, and Solomon, my servants, as touching the principle and doctrine of their having many wives and concubines. The first verse is not saying, I'm laying out this to talk about the eternal nature of marriage if it's done by the correct priesthood power. It's done for the purpose of understanding how there can be plurality of wives. He immediately goes to the Old Testament patriarchs and hearkens to them, kind of calls on, uh, evokes the Old Testament patriarchs as part of this kind of setting up Emma. I mean, really, it's Joseph. It's almost like in the language that the revelation is given, Joseph is being spoken to and Emma is being spoken to, but through Joseph. So Joseph is the language. It sounds like the Lord is speaking to both of them and that Joseph is conveying the message. At least that's the, what I, how I take it. And so he invites Joseph to prepare, to receive, to obey. And if he abide not or not reject this covenant, you cannot be permitted into God's glory. Um, he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or he shall be damned. In other words, Joseph, if you don't do plurality of wives as I'm commanding you, you shall be damned. The Lord uses very early on the phrase new and everlasting covenant. So obviously, new and everlasting covenant is another um kind of open phrase that we have kind of redefined to mean not just plurality, sealing plurality, but the sealing power and eternal marriage itself. So how we've, how we've used the new and everlasting covenant. I'm really interested in this phrase just because of how it's come back into the temple ceremony and, and the way that it's being used in the temple ceremony now, since the recent changes that have tried to make some more gender parity. And I know some of you might be thinking about thinking about that. And then you get this sense of this contract, this contrast that the Lord gives that, that there's the eternal way of marrying people. And there's the worldly way of marrying people, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, <laughs> or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise 
of him who is anointed both as well for time and for all eternity, and that too is most holy, by revelation and commandment through the medium of mine appointed, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power. And I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last days. And there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of the priesthood are conferred. In other words, the prophet holds all of the sealing keys that he can delegate to other sealers, which I believe we all know. Um, let's see. These are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead for all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. If you're not married unto the, the with the priesthood power, with the sealing power, then you're only married for this life. And everything that is in this world, whether it be ordained of men by thrones or principalities or powers or things of name, whatsoever they may be, they are not by me or by words, say the Lord, say the Lord, shall be thrown down and shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection. You have, again, the Lord is contrasting. You need to do all things that you want to fulfill this large priesthood of cosmology that Joseph wants that has to be done through the priesthood power or it will not be binding in the next, next life. So you look then, the Lord makes lists and they're pretty, they're pretty clear lists for the eternal sealing. What are the requirements for an eternal sealing? Um, that the couple shall be making a covenant for time and all eternity. They shall, it, it shall be sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise. Through him who is anointed and appointed, meaning Joseph in this case, but also any subsequent prophet who holds the sealing keys. And I find this one interesting that the Lord spent some time in this section talking about, and make sure you don't commit murder. Maybe that was directed to Emma because she was about ready to murder Joseph. So... Maybe that was a very specific instruction. And he reminds Joseph periodically, my house is a house of order. Though when you read about how polygamy was kind of laid out in Nauvoo, how it began and this kind of haphazard and very clunky and very awkward and controversial way and troublesome way that polygamy kind of got laid out in Nauvoo, I, it doesn't sound like a house of order to me personally. It sounds very chaotic of how it happened. And maybe that was um, Joseph is, you know, receiving this revelation after the fact, after he's already spent a year and a half introducing plurality of wives to his closest circles in Nauvoo. And now he's putting words on it and that those words sometimes don't necessarily meld with the way that it had taken place to begin with. But here are then the, the blessings. Come, you shall come forth in the first resurrection. You shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths. Exaltation and glory in all things. They, does use the word they, because I was trying to pay particular attention in 132 to where the Lord is saying he versus when he says they. And it's obviously tipped very much against they and very much in favor of the word he. Um, but it does say they shall be gods. They shall be from everlasting to everlasting. They have all power. Angels shall be subject unto them. This is eternal lives. 
to know the only wise and true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So I look at this list of blessings, and this tends to be, again, one of these ways that we focus on 132 by focusing on the rewards and the blessings promised to couples who enter into the, um, to the eternal sealing, are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, are faithful to their covenants throughout their lives, and then in the eternities, they receive all of this expansion of their glory, expansion of their own creation. Um, and this is a pretty good list. If you look at this list, if you are referring to they, this is a pretty good list, list that can be shared. Um, my stoppage comes then when I think about this list in terms of, hmm, and I'm grateful, Maxine, that you, that you, that you prayed to Heavenly Mother in our, at the beginning, the entrance of our, of our lesson today, because it made me think one of the, how should I put this? This notion that you can be um, co-creators with God, this assumption that in the eternities, this kind of cosmology of couples then will reproduce more spirit bodies, more spirit bodies, more spirit bodies, that then will fill mortal bodies on new earths that are created according to this list, kingdoms, principalities, powers, dominions, all heights and depths, exaltation, gods, gods create, gods recreate. And... I sometimes wonder, is it, is it something to look forward to, to know that in the eternities, any offspring that I might have are not allowed to talk to me ever again, are not allowed to see me or speak to me or recognize me or talk to me ever again, and that I'm essentially invisible to them. And so sometimes I find these blessings maybe. Um, they feel hollow to me personally as a woman. I'm sure this is a great list for men because as you see yourself becoming God someday, this is a great list for what it entails to become a God because your children will still recognize you and hearken to you and pray to you and recognize you and, and acknowledge you and all of that. So how do we get past also this notion of um, kind of a male collection of powers and blessings that is entailed in this. And yet at the same time, you think about this list as being, um, you know, if you can think about what will this list look like for me in the eternities, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever imagined what this list will feel like in the eternities, how it will play out. What would be your greatest kind of fulfillment of this list? Um, but it comes back to that this is how we tend to interpret our version of eternal marriage, of 132 just meaning et eternal marriage, and going to the sealing covenant itself in the temple and what is promised to us as couples and that we share. Okay, so... And feel free if any of you have any questions or comments to pop them in the chat or maybe I guess, or better things to say than what I'm saying. Um, I was going to talk about verse 26 because verse 26 kind of baffled me a little bit, but I'm going to skip over it because I'm feeling a little tired. <laughs> okay, so the revelation goes back to referring to the Abrahamic covenant and Abraham's promised blessings. Hang on just a second. 
Abraham's promised blessings. Abraham received promised promises concerning his seed and the fruit of his loins. From his loins ye are, namely my servant Joseph, which were to continue so long as they were in the world. And as touching Abraham and his seed, out of the world they should continue. Both in the world and out of the world they continue as innumerable as the stars. Or if you were to count the sand upon the seashore, you could not number them. So again, there's this promise that in this patriarchal order, Abraham is promised innumerable seed. You don't hear that Sariah is, is promised innumerable seed, but that Abraham is and that Joseph is by default an inheritor of this promise as well. This promise is yours also because ye are of Abraham. And the promise was made unto Abraham. And by this law is the continuation of the works of my father, wherein he glorifieth himself. Go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham. Enter ye, Joseph, into my law, law of plural marriage, the new and everlasting covenant. And ye shall be saved like Abraham. God commanded Abraham and Sarah gave Hagar to uh, Abraham to wife. And why did she do it? Because this was the law. And from Hagar sprang many people. This therefore was fulfilling, among other things, the promises to Abraham and to you, Joseph. For the first time in this section, you hear a female referenced in her relationship to this covenant and this law. And that is Sarah and Hagar. And we know, of course, that Hagar becomes basically the mother of the Middle East and Sarah, the mother of Judeo-Christian tradition, and Hagar, the mother of Islamic uh, peoples, and this is innumerable promises, etc. But the point here is that Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham. That Sarah herself went out and found a handmaiden and gave her to Abraham. And I'm fascinated by that relationship. And we're going to talk. We're going to talk a little bit later in later in the in the section. He refers to uh, the law of Sarah, which hopefully some of you can give some some insight into. Notice who is making the sacrifice here. Abraham is making the sacrifice, referencing sacrificing his son. And the Lord says it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham received concubines and they bore him children. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. So you have this very Abraham-centric process of reproduction that's going on here. It was accounted unto him for righteousness, not accounted unto them for righteousness. And nowhere is Sarah's sacrifice or even Hagar's sacrifice referenced in these verses. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon did none other than what they were commanded. Well, I'll say none other. That's a pretty like wide spread because when you understand the numbers of concubines that Solomon had, all of those were commanded of the Lord. You have to, you have, it gives you pause. Like all of those concubines were commanded of the Lord is kind of what this, these verses are saying. All of those concubines are commanded of the Lord. Meanwhile, what happens if you don't enter into this new and everlasting covenant? So, oh, that I were a ministering angel. Therefore, when they are out of the world, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are appointed angels in heaven 
which angels are ministering servants to minister for those who are worthy of a far more and exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. For these angels did not abide my law. They cannot be enlarged, but remain separately and singly without exaltation in their safe condition to all eternity. And from thenceforth are not gods, but are angels of gods forever. And my question here is that you, and I've often wanted to do kind of some study on this is can Ministering angels, can angels only be male? What do you think? Can angels only be male? This seems to be saying they, men and women, are out neither married nor given in marriage. They become angels, servant angels. By the way, who have you ever joked about these verses? Did any of you ever say, well, if you, and like I was single until I was 33. So the single jokes were, I mean, come on. Like they, I mean, I, I got lots of mileage out of single jokes. And in singles words, people say, well, you can always be my ministering angel. If you don't get married, you can be my ministering angel. I mean, the way that we, the way that we work through these conundrums in our, in our church practice in our head is kind of hysterical. Um, but I'll symbolize the sheer absurdity of some of these propositions, some of these propositions. Um, so there is a sense that if you do not marry in this new and everlasting covenant, that you will not achieve the celestial kingdom, at least, and even the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, which in DNC 131 outlined according to the various degrees that are uh, dependent upon ones having received this new and everlasting covenant okay now we get into the tough stuff <laughs> as if that wasn't already tough this is the tough stuff then um emma is brought into this this is remember this is for emma this is because joseph wants to try to convince emma that this is eternal and that he's received this revelation and this instruction this commandment and that he must do it so I just went through 45 through 50. You can do this on your own. Just set 45 through 50 side by side with 51 through 57 and compare the language and the tone in the two, two types. So Joseph's promises, restore unto, I will restore unto you the keys and the power of the priesthood. I will make known unto you all things. Whatsoever you seal, bind, or whoever sins you shall remit shall be done in heaven. Whomsoever you bless, I will bless. Whomsoever you curse, I will curse. Whomsoever you give on earth, etc., shall be visited with blessings, not curses. I seal upon you your exaltation. Basically, this verse, Joseph said, and the Lord says, Joseph, your, your exaltation is guaranteed. I prepare a throne for you. I have seen all your sacrifices. I forgive all your sins. Now let's look at Emma's. She should stay herself and partake not of that which, you, that which I commanded you to offer to her. He says, I was just testing you, but don't offer. Emma had wanted to, was it William Clayton, Maxine? She was wanting to be sealed to William Clayton. As like, well, if you get to be sealed to somebody else, then I get to be sealed to William Clayton, if I'm not mistaken. It's only did. fair. I think she was kind of joking about William Marks. I'd have to check my notes, but I thought it was yeah. William. Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. 
And so it was maybe, and maybe it was considered for a few minutes of, okay, in order to make Emma okay with all of this, then we'll give her a man to be sealed to so that she doesn't feel like it's completely imbalanced and completely unfair. But then he says, nope, just kidding. I was testing you to see whether you could do this. I require an offering at your hand by covenant and by sacrifice. Let Emma receive all those wives that have been given to Joseph that are pure and virtuous. Any women or wives that are not pure, but said they were shall be destroyed. So now we're issuing destruction on women that are not even recognized or named, but just in case they're not virtuous, if they said they were, if they're not a virgin, if they said they were a virgin, but they're not a virgin, they shall be destroyed kind of thing. That's how I read it. Ye Emma shall obey my voice. Joseph shall be made ruler over many things. Now we're back to Joseph. So even Emma's verses go back to Joseph. He hath been faithful. I will strengthen him. Leave unto Joseph and none else. If you don't obey, you, Emma, shall be destroyed. But if you, Emma, don't obey, I will still bless Joseph and multiply him and give unto him an hundredfold of fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, houses and lands, wives and children, and crowns of eternal lives in the eternal worlds. So even the verses that are directed toward Emma somehow fall back into, well, let's tell, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to give Joseph, even if you're not faithful. Forgive Joseph his trespasses and your trespasses will be forgiven. I will bless you, Emma, and multiply you and make your heart to rejoice if you forgive him. So those are Emma's warnings. I should say warnings and blessings. And I'm really fascinated. I would love to hear discussion about what you think about some of this list. Um, you know, as I've been look, preparing for this for weeks and reading what, you know, different blogs and people have been saying and putting out on the internet and Exponent 2 had a great um, kind of a post about I don't know who wrote it, um, had a post about how the language of 132 is basically kind of the language of, um, you know, training your abused or training, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, grooming, like a grooming kind of language. It's a grooming kind of language. But it's also this um, very, very imbalanced language here. It's very imbalanced. And this is, I think, where if we have to land on 132 and what troubles us the most about it, I would venture to say it's these verses. Am I right? Is this what bothers most people about it? Is this, in section 25, you have this wonderful elegy to Emma being this chosen woman, this handmaiden, and this this uh, she's she's very blessed and all these blessings and then you have this um kind of juxtaposition of very very harsh disciplinary almost angry language um and destructive language and it makes you just feel so much um empathy for emma in what was what was going on here the situation that she found herself and that she was placed in um to have to deal with all these changes. Um, yeah, so so think about some of these. I'm trying to... So, 
Sorry, Andrea, I uh, just so that you're not uh, heard as completely rhetorical. Um, one one comment here: you don't want to hear what I have to say about this. Okay. Um, it's hard. Yes. And well, okay. We'll we'll have some discussion. Okay. Now I want to give a little historic context on what happened to this section. And I'd like to thank Maxine for giving me some historic ideas and and helping me to see where this went. After the revelation was received, it didn't become officially canon of the in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. Um, Orson Pratt had announced the doctrine of plural marriage um, before the congregation, before the church in Salt Lake in 1852. And then when they were making the um, section, the doctrine and covenants, um, and when it was first, section 132 is first canonized and published as part of the doctrine and covenants in 1876. Interestingly, just one year before Brigham Young died. Pratt removed um, an earlier section called 101, was known as the 1835 article on marriage. And I might turn it over a little bit to Maxine to talk about that article on marriage that was, it was um, basically a revelation received in, in Ohio, having to do with outlining that um, we declare and we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in the case of death when either is at liberty to marry again. So that, that section on marriage and the, the eventuality of death and either one can marry again is replaced then with 132. Looking ahead then, in the 1880s, John Taylor begins to distinguish between the law of celestial marriage and the principle of plural marriage. And from the Journal of Discourses, he, God, hath revealed unto us the law of celestial marriage associated with which is the principle of plural marriage. James E. Talmadge then in the 1920s again redirects celestial marriage as eternal marriage, not plural marriage exclusively. Talmadge proposes a condensed doctrine of covenants and actually omits 132. Um, and that didn't happen. When that, was, when that omission happened, it uh, upset fundamentalists and was it Heber J. Grant said it needs to be put back in. So you have this, um, I might need to wrap up here in a little bit because I want to leave some time for discussion. Um, how we see this has to do with what, we, what I would say is the rule or the exception, the exception or the rule. And I've often taught this to my own students that the eternal marriage is the law and there are two principles of it or multiple principles of it, monogamy and polygamy, but the eternal marriage itself, which I think gels with how most of us are reading this section right now, how we view it. Um, and, that's, and that's fair. And that's fair. Where it comes down to the unfairness is the imbalance of this relationship. So... Again, for me to necessarily undo the idea of plural marriage at all, because I'm a second sealed wife, would be a little disingenuous. But at the same time, it would be nice if this, if the polyandrous version of plurality that Joseph was also experimenting with in Nauvoo 
not necessarily in the ceiling form, but that was uh, represented more of what we had. That comes down to, um, if you go to, um, let's see, I'm going to go to the verse here. Um, that's going to be the verse. The same associations that exist in this. What's the verse I'm thinking of in these readings for today's lesson? The same associations that exist shall continue with us in in the eternities. Um, and I, I I like to I like to harken back to that. That if you think of plurality as for all of its different reasons, he's trying to create a large kinship network, kinship network of extended family that go back in the eternities. Um, think of it in this way that not only are you sealed to whatever wives you're sealed to, but you're also sealed to all of her relatives and you're sealed. You're connected to your grandparents and your great grandparents, and your great, great grandparents. And this is kind of like, this becomes more of this intricate web like thing. So if that's the purpose of it to create these kind of worlds without end and these intricate connected kinship links, why why then make it exclusively this patriarchal system? So then you get into the reproduction aspect of it. And what does it have to do with the reproduction aspect of it, either in the world or in the eternities? And what are the ramifications of it as a reproductive type of program? Um, and there's, there's all the questions that I, that I have for you. I'm trying to look ahead to some of my... Um, other there are some other punishments listed if she has if for those that are adulterous if she has committed adultery she shall be destroyed the reward for her sinfulness is destruction but if she has not committed adultery and is innocent and has not broken her vow she shall be given to someone else and he shall be made made ruler over many so the reward for her sinlessness is to be given to someone else and he, and he the person she's given to shall be made ruler not her you have some these various these various ways that this is, seems to be like a collection of of belongings for men in some way now finally i just want to end with the word justify and i want you to think back to doctrine and covenants section 98 in which after the saints have learned of so much going on in missouri and there's this feeling of um indignation, anger, we want to revenge, we want to go and protect our people in Missouri, that the Lord actually gives the saints a commandment to turn the other cheek, essentially, to be peacemakers and to forgive. But he says, if ye are justified, I will justify you, he says, if you do choose to take extreme action, you it's not a blessing you're justified so the difference between being blessed and being justified and i'd like you to think about this in section 132 that the exception rather than the rule to rule rather than the exception is that the rule is monogamy the exception to the rule is polygamy unless you shall be justified to do polygamy um and this seems to be the language of the last few verses of 132. The rule is monogamy. The exception to the rule or the justification is polygamy, if you read it in those ways.
Okay. Um, so these are just some of my thoughts on 132. I don't know necessarily how faith promoting I was today. Um, if that's the standard, then you can go ahead and give me one star and the little feedback box or, you know, write to Chris or Rebecca. And, um, but I am, you know, I, I do want to be fair and I want to see things. I don't necessarily want to call out polygamy itself, although I, I recognize people's feelings about it, hard feelings about it. But I would like to see somehow in our doctrine, in our practice, that we embrace more of an egalitarian, a, a gender, uh, gender parity in our marital relationships um, and in the eternities and how these are seen in the eternities. I would, that's, a, that's kind of like a secret hope of mine. But I also think that we should really consider Emma as we read these verses and consider her sacrifice and what she gave for the church um, personally, spiritually, culturally, socially, physically in all ways and to honor that sacrifice, to honor her for that. <clears throat> so with all of that, um, I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Oh, okay. So um, one of the comments that came across in the chat, there's a couple that are, are related to this. Um, David Sandberg says, an interesting lens to ponder here is to build off the question that Gene England raised. What if Abraham failed his test and instead of challenging God, like he did for Sodom and Gomorrah, he accepted blindly um, and did not prepare his son nor seek his compliance. So, so then, you know, the question, you know, might be, you know, what if Joseph also failed this test? What if um, he had chosen to say that one companion was more valued than his own personal glory and power? And that also um, kind of connect with that. Another comment that's, that brings out that, um, that these verses seem to justify to indicate that the patriarchs were justified. Although I think you bringing out that, you know, po polygamy, the rule is monogamy. Polygamy is the exception kind of complicates that a little bit. Um, but Jacob two twenty four says that what they did was abominable before the yeah. Lord. So there's a real, you know, disconnect between that. And then what we have in the doctrine and covenants that, um, as some of others have pointed out, you know, doesn't actually get canonized and included until significantly later. Right. In church. Uh, yeah. And I remember <clears throat> studying Jacob chapter two when I was in college and reading it against DNC 132. And I'm like, wait a second, these two things are almost saying the exact opposite saying the exact opposite thing. And these, you know, Solomon had so many concubines. I don't know when I picture Solomon on his throne and surrounded by women feeding him grapes. I'm not seeing that as, you know, commanded by God justified so that he could raise up seed. I, I see that as Solomon using his power for his own purposes. And I don't know if you're like that, but that's not the vision I have in my head. And so, Yeah. Yeah, Andrea, I'm, I appreciate 
your approach. And I, I guess I want to acknowledge that there are a number of comments from people um, wanting to go down the road of uh, just eliminating 132, that it's a, so problematic and, and there's plenty of history to go with that conversation. Right. Um, I, you have taken us in a different direction today, which I, um, I personally appreciate as, a, as, as one of the ways to talk about this in, in terms of um, talking about the text and the way it is so problematic, even if you take the text as given. Um, and, and in that context, uh, and a comment question here uh, points out, basically, first of all, appreciation for the way you started with uh, uh, being a second wife. Um, which positions this conversation in a, uh, we need to make sense of multiple relationships. Somehow we need to make sense of multiple relationships. And the problem is not, the problem here is not necessarily, or at least not a place to start, that um, monogamy, that, that one marriage only for life and eternity is the only pattern possible um, because there are, because life is complicated and there are second marriages and there are multiple relationships, but that the problem, at least that we're talking about today that you focused us upon is that um, this section turns very quickly to a, to a very patriarchal, um, it works for Joseph. It doesn't work very for- much. It doesn't work for single people. It doesn't work for Emma. It doesn't work for anybody but the patriarchs, basically, the Joseph Smith, the Brigham Young, the Heber C. Kimball, the, uh, everybody else. I mean, all the women and all the people who never marry and um, all the men who never have a second wife uh, are, are almost condemned by the way this reads right yeah um and i had a thought when you were talking just now it's really interesting to me that this does quickly turn into a um, kind of a manipulative text a controlling text directed toward emma um that doesn't leave her a lot of agency or even recognition of her grappling and does any recognition of her choice of her sacrifices of what she's going through. It seems to all be directed toward you need to, I mean, it's very self-serving in a way. The, the section sounds very self-serving and that's why some, you know, you get into these arguments of yes, decanonize it immediately because Joseph just made it up and I'm not going to give, thought one way or the other i i don't know um but if joseph did put some of his own words into this section that he was trying to use more forceful language to convince emma um you got a you got a troublesome path there i guess yeah my issue is again like if there was a more of a gendered parity on the idea of plurality um, you know, that, and I mean, we can, women can be sealed to more than one husband, technically, when you look at like family history, 
work. Your grandmother who was married to more than one man, you seal her to all of them. But then there's the assumption of she gets just to choose which one. But men still don't have to choose. Men have to men get to have all of the ones that. And then there's the other problematic part of it is of sealing women to men who that relationship was abusive in life. And this she have no say in that kind of thing. Um, there's just so many layers to how this can turn problematic. So I'm totally, I'm sympathetic to those that say, just trash this section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So my question is, is can we, is there enough of the doctrine of eternal marriage elsewhere that we wouldn't need this section? Could we still have the doctrine of plural marriage as part of our doctrine? without this section, if we toss this, and I'm actually putting that out there. I mean, even 131 and, or if you just remove, just took some of those verses I talked about at the beginning of things that should be bound on, what shall be bound on earth? Take the, take the pet phrases. What shall be bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. I give you the ceiling power. Just kind of pull out a handful of those necessary ones. We hold on to the, the ceiling power and toss all of the polygamy stuff. What do you think? Well, can I can I push back on that? I guess. Um, and by yeah. the way, your your screen is still shared, so that maybe you want the screen instead of your face. Okay. Um, however, you want to be. Uh, yes, the conversation about can we get rid of one thirty two and add and find all we need elsewhere, but. My pushback, and I, this is me, this is not comments here, but um, don't we need something more? Don't we need to add, for example, the image of what Emma gets out of this is not very inspiring for any woman reading what Emma gets out of plural marriage. Um, that's, uh, don't we need to add something there to make it um to have some parody or to have something inspiring, something uplifting in the message for, for women, if you will. Also, what do we do with single people? We, we've learned recently that more than half of the adults in the church are never married or not married. And don't we, we have no, I mean, we have, we don't even have a proxy practice for people who never marry. And are they just, going to be forever left out or don't we need to add something that we don't have anywhere in scripture yeah yeah so i'm i'm really thinking about and there are a number of comments about you know the problem is not for many is not about multiple relationships or this kind of you know stealing connection to um to again like more than one person and, and joseph's vision um as we talked about with Joseph Stapley a couple of weeks ago is about like, how do we create kind of the Zion where we're all actually connected and recognize our, our eternal connections here in, in some kind of earthly way. Right. So how do we translate that into this mortal um, uh, experience and how can we begin to create kind of the structures for that? But but 132 is all about kind of these hierarchies, right. And it's all about power and, um, and like, you know, starting out the raw patriarchy of it. Um, and then, you know, going from there, you know, what does this do to not just 
you know, to, to different groups of women. So you've got the women who get included in polygamy and they have some access to power and blessings, but then you have single people who are, you know, relegated to this, you know, servant um, relationship with, with others. Um, and, and that has been, a, you know, I've just um, seen recently just how painful that is um, as people take that that idea in our theology seriously um, and are broken apart if their marriage falls apart and, and, you know, have a, or that they don't have those um, blessings. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) I mean, there's no way to read those verses directed toward Emma and I don't read them and feel any love at all. There's no love in those verses. The only time that she's given some kind of a, you will be, blessed is if she forgives Joseph. Yeah. There's a great comment. There's a great comment that came through on the Q and a that says um, uh, from Charles Randall Paul, that says until president Nelson added it to the marriage ceiling, there was no mention of love to any LDS ordinance. Um, But there is DNC 121 that says persuasive, sincere love is essential for divine power. Right. So we have that within the, theology outside of 132. Um, but then he goes on the rewards of the newer and everlasting covenant do not describe loving relationships, but, but they must be included. So, um, so leaders of today are recognizing, you know, the relational power of love. Um, but we still are hanging on to this, um, kind of regal power order that's described in 132. Mm-hmm. It all is layered on top of each other too. You know, if you believe in the ceiling power because you believe that we all can become co-creators with God and then in the next life, we're all going to be co-creating with God and then it just keeps going and keeps going. Like, where do you unravel that? Where do you start to unravel that? Do you just say, you know, we don't need to be co-creators with God. Um, It's kind of a ridiculous notion anyway. Why not? We just all be, have this grand association in the next life. Um, what are God's purposes? What to bring to pass the um, immortality and eternal life of man? Well, is this part of that? Is this creating worlds, creating offspring? Is this part of this? Um, or is this because Joseph was using some of his power loosely for his own purposes? Um, yeah. Could I toss in a couple of? Additional thoughts, Andrea? Sure. So yeah. more context interpretation. <clears throat> 132 is really evidence of Joseph wrestling with different sides of polygamy and himself. And it has some of the best and some of the worst of his theological thinking, the best and the worst. And I'm glad you mentioned the two sections at the beginning, the part where it refutes itself. The revelation makes it clear that anything that is not of God will fall apart and come to naught, which polygamy at least patriarchal polygyny does eventually. And then the other part, which is that there's no distinction between male and female gods, they're equal in power and glory and authority. There's no differentiation. That's foreshadowing the endowment and the second anointing, the equal uh, ordination and power and priesthood that men and women get in the temple. So there are two you know, positive things there. And then the other positive thing is that much of, especially the first half, much of the reference to the notion of eternal marriage is about just the nature of eternal relationships and not about polygamy. But then there are other aspects where patriarchal polygyny comes in. So much of 132 can be interpreted to simply be talking about 
celestial marriage. And the other thing I was going to say is that it is a theological football. You know, it <clears throat> all the way along, uh, we start out with Jacob two, and then the the article on marriage, section 101 in 1835, that are calling many wives and concubines an abomination. But if God commands it, you know, Jacob two says, if in, unless God commands it, 132 signals that the time has come when God is commanding it. And when God commands it, then it's it's okay. So there's that caveat that 132 is, is a signifier that the time has come for the commandment. But another aspect of the theological football nature of, of 132 is the historical context of how it emerges and why. Ben Park is right that Joseph is doing polyandry before 1842. There are three women um, that he marries and they're polyandrous. Yeah. Um, it's it's um, Lucinda Morgan Harris in 1838 and then Zina and Prescindia Huntington. All three of those women are married to other men. Joseph is not doing patriarchal polygyny at that point at, during those years, 1838 to 1841. So what happens? People identify Louisa Beeman as being married in 1841, but she's not, it's actually 42. So there's this tremendous shift in 1842 in the practice of polygamy and what Joseph is doing. And he is heavily under the influence of Brigham Young and John C. Bennett in 1841. So there's a there's an important context there that Brigham Young brings the notion of polygyny to Joseph Smith when he comes back from his mission to England. He wants to marry Martha Brotherton. And he persuades Joseph and, and Heber Kimball to back him up. And they trap her in a room, they lock her in a room, and she writes an expose about this. But this happens in, in February of 1842. So 1841, Brigham comes back and tells Joseph he's had a revelation that church should practice polygyny. So he and Joseph are talking about this. And then he convinces Joseph to write the Nauvoo marriage ordinance in February of 1842, which stipulates that pretty much anybody, it's very loosely defined, but anybody can marry anybody as long as they come to the magistrate. And then the next day, Brigham wants to marry Martha Brotherton, the day after the Nauvoo marriage ordinance. So there's this big shift that happens in 1842. And... Um, and uh, Emma finds out about it later and she's really opposing this. And this all kind of boils up and explodes in 1843. And, and so Hiram and Brigham are, are persuading Joseph to do this. So you see Joseph torn between these different tendencies and Joseph doesn't start practicing patriarchal polygyny until 1842. So it, I think 132 needs to be seen in the context of this dramatic shift in what Joseph is doing from polyandry to polygyny, patriarchal polygyny. And there are these different sides of Joseph and voices that are emerging in 18, in, in section 132. And I hear Brigham's voice. I even hear John C. Bennett a little bit. Um, but, um, and I'm not blaming it all on them, but Joseph is wrestling with his darker and better angels in 132. And so there are three positives and a whole lot of really horrible patriarchal abusive stuff in there. And then it becomes a football, uh, I call the Hail Mary pass from Brigham Young to Orson Pratt. 1852 and 1876, Brigham brings it back and says, um, oh, I left out the most important part. 18th, June of 1844, Michael Quinn says that, that Joseph regrets 132 and he burns it ritually to undo the revelation. He burns it. 
a month before he dies. And William Marks is one of the sources on this, that, that Joseph um, regrets 132. I don't think he regrets polyandry and these other aspects of polygamy, but he regrets 132 and it's burned a month before he dies. And Brigham then brings it back in 1852, but he asks Orson Pratt to do it. And then in 1876, he asks Orson Pratt to put it into to canon. And then later, as you mentioned, then the political football goes the other direction um, in the 1880s and 1920s. So it really is a, a sorry, a, both a political and a theological football. But I think it's safe to say that Joseph completely regretted it and burned it in 1844, a month before he died. How many right. marriages did he? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, I. Um, there's so I'm so glad that we've captured some of this in our in our um, recording. Um, and there's more to talk about. And I think we'll continue some of this conversation. Uh, but Andrea, maybe you want to just uh, have a few closing remarks, and then we'll uh, kind of wrap up our official lesson. You know, I. Um... I'm grateful to know that all of us grapple with this thing. There's not one person in the church who is not um, deep down. There's some kind of a um, inner disconnect or conflict that you feel over this section. I, I would, I would really wage that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be like in the next life. But I like the idea of having a large association of people. You know, I like the idea of having you all as a large association of people. I like the, the idea that our associations will continue into the next life, which is also part of these readings, you know, and if that's something we can hold on to as to the polygamy itself, um, you know, I'm going to raise my kids and live the best life I can. <sighs> and hope that whatever it looks like in the next life that I did my best and I, um, that I'm covered either way. Polygamy or no polygamy, I'm covered. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, so um, I don't know what else to say about it emotionally, um, spiritually. But thanks for letting me at least express some thoughts about it today. And if some things that I said weren't very clear, I apologize. It's part of having low caloric intake this week. So, oh, but. thank you, thank you so much. This is one quick correction. I meant William Law, not William Marks. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, <laughs> it's a big difference. William uh, William Law was offered to Emma as a Polandra's husband and. Um, William Law turned down the whole thing. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Andrea, for your, for your, um, for sharing yourself and your insights uh, with this lesson. Uh, we'll be back next Sunday evening, remember, with Dialogue in Review and then Gospel Study in two weeks on November 28th with Dr. Amy Harris. We're also looking forward to upcoming lessons this year with Carter Charles and Darren Perry. Uh, our closing prayer will be offered by one of our longtime attendees, Lori Call.
Our dear Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, we're very grateful for the, the blessings we've received at thy hand and through the gospel of Jesus Christ and by people who think and ask questions and want very much to follow principles and guidances from, our, from divine realms. We ask thee to be with us as we continue in this process because we know that God's ways are not our ways and that we're sent here to live by faith. And we ask a special blessing on us as we listen to leaders of the church that talk to us about our priesthood powers being women and as we recognize that the Holy Ghost can bless our lives and give us continuing revelation, we are so grateful for the lives of women in the past and how they teach us that their message and their lives can help us to love and bless the lives of everyone we interact with, that everyone is a child of God. It matters not who they are, that, that we love very much and we need to embrace and include. And we pray that thy blessing will be on us as we continue on this in the Sabbath day and as we read femaleness and maternity into the scriptures. And we pray for these blessings in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.